June 2024, you are listening to Living Proof, the cultural archive of real lives happening. Issue six of Living Proof magazine features graffiti writers Katsu and Camel, skateboarders Sean Powers and Tino Razo, rappers YL and Starker, and artists Nicole McLaughlin, Nate Lohman, Fei Weiwei, Tom Hardwick Allen, Ned Vina, and Tao Lin. Available now on our Patreon and online shop. Live Improve Magazine, Katsu Issue, June 2024. Christian Acker is a New York-based designer and creative director with personal roots in the hardcore and graffiti cultures. He started the Hand Selected Project back in 2003, documenting hand styles for over 10 years from writers like Mike Giant, Chino, Agua, Espo, and Stay High 149. Between 2003 and 2013, he assembled over 100 interviews and alphabets by American writers of different cities, spanning from the 1960s to the 2010s. His book, Flip the Script, helps contextualize American graffiti through those interviews and writing samples placed in a historic context. It was the first to present material like this in a clean, structured layout. It's been out of print and hotly pursued for the last five years, and he just re-released it. You can purchase the book at handselected.com and use the code Angel and Z to get 20% off. Peace and enjoy the episode. Well, dude, thanks for coming on the show. I'm yeah. super hyped on this. And uh, yeah, I've been, I've been um, a fan of Flip the Script and I was, I've been watching your YouTube videos for a very long time. Yeah. I think that what you've done... Um, in terms of gathering all of this information, putting it in one really well put together book, uh, showing like the beauty and the art behind the hand style and really focusing it on the hand style, which is really cool, is something that's very interesting. And, and uh, how did you, what initially made you want to do Flip the Script? Oh shit. Um, I don't know, it was kind of like just one of those projects that is always in the background. I don't know if you guys had those types of projects, but like um, maybe I'll, tell you how it started and then I'll come up with how I, I wanted to I guess um, I was studying design originally I uh, grew up in New Jersey moved to New York in 1997 and I was at Parsons for a couple of years and actually started in 97 left school took a year off came back 98 and then that kind of coincidentally put me in that four-year period where I graduated right when 9-11 happened mm-hmm. so um, back to the 9-11 story later but uh essentially i ended up finishing school and it was like that weird dip in the economy particularly in new york like right after 9-11 so i was like just looking to you know find a way to be creative do something good and i was studying typography in school and at that time there wasn't like a type design program but i had one teacher who had um done type design so i started like kind of messing around with this and interning with him. In the beginning, I was just trying to figure out my first font designs were like, I think I designed a, uh, no, I did a a tattoo font like before there was any tattoo fonts like out on the web and stuff. So I was like, I got, it may have been a BJ Betts flash sheet from like a tattoo friend of mine and um, did like a wonky, like it didn't, BJ, I'm sorry, if that's out there somewhere, it doesn't do you justice. Um, but I was doing fonts, mm-hmm. and um, graph was always in the background. Growing up in New Jersey in the hardcore scene, my only experience with it was like the back of some strip mall in New Jersey for you know toy shit for like years and years. And then when I moved to the city, 
I was just catching street level tags, just walking around, um, catching tags for, for the longest time. So I was really interested in kind of merging what I was interested in at the time, kind of outside of, you know, the, the culture that we live in uh, with kind of the, the practical stuff of what I was learning in school. Mm-hmm. So um, that was also a period of time where like Barry McGee and Steve Powers and uh, Todd James, they all had that big show at Deitch Gallery, like I want to say 99 or 2000, maybe it was. So it was like one of the first times where that stuff was like just starting to kind of pop up and like get not just the attention deserve, deserved, but the the quality that you were, you were hoping to see from it. So that was probably the inspiration for it. Um, I was looking around to do it. A friend of mine, my buddy uh, Mesk, who's one of the artists in the books, is from D.C., and Mesk was one of the first guys to show me hand styles from different places because growing up in the late 90s, it was all very similar styled stuff that I was used to. Mm-hmm. And growing up in D.C., 10 years older than me, he went to art school in Philly, and he was the first person. I grew up in between Philly and New York, so I knew the difference and saw the difference, but I never had somebody actually like, show me how to do a Philly hand. Mm-hmm. Back then, it wasn't common to do that unless you were like around people who did it. Yeah. Um, now you can see videos of people doing it, and like I, you couldn't even read that shit back then if you weren't like around it, you know. And it was so. it was ten years of you compiling them, right? Or yeah. like the description is like ten years of you doing this to yeah. make the book a reality. So when you started, how were you able to track down all these writers? Because it's not like just New York; it's really all over the United States. One at a time. Um, you know, Mask was the first dude to kind of like, actually, yeah, Mask was one of the first. Um, when I was writing in college, I met Hence, um, and Hence was one of the first people to like sit me down and be like, all right, let's slow down, like, you know, before you go piecing, like, you know, figure out a good tag, before you even try to like add style to your tag, get a good print, um, before, you, you know, you even try to do a throwy, let's like start you with balloon letters. It was very like, Henson Hush, I, I came to know Hush years later, but Henson Hush like really had like a program for like trying to like bring people up and like give them like a program for for how to like build style in a programmatic way, mm-hmm. which was very. Um, I want to say it was very old school. I'm not sure if they got that from someone else. Hush is kind of like a mastermind madman type of a thing. So like he's on his own wavelength, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that he would, you know be the guy that was like, here's the program and the way that we're going to do it and the system that we're going to kind of try to teach it. And he was he was down to like, these are the markers that you should use and this is the notebook that you should have and everybody should have like the same kit. And um, I only, I think I met Hush 10 years after Hence like gave me those things and it was the pieces started to come together. And that was kind of a lot of the project was like the pieces come together and you start to connect the dots. Um, but one of my... Uh, Hence, Sabe. Sabe was like the other one, like the old St. Mark's bookstore. Mm-hmm. I was like walking around St. Mark's bookstore looking at design books. Sabe rolled in and he had like a tattoo that I was like, you know, wh- you know, what do you write type of a thing. And he was like one of the first people to be like completely open. That guy's just like got a completely open mindset. I was like, yeah, I'll get down. Let's do it. So once you have like two or three people, they connect you to some people and – you know, I think Mask um, knew Espo from back in the day. Once Espo was down, other people wanted to get down. Um, so it, it goes, you know, one at a time, one at a time. And eventually uh, YouTube was the, the real thing that started, like, 
make me known in other cities. And like, I think I put Sabe's video, if you go deep back in my YouTube clips, it's like, like a really first, shitty, video, right? really yeah. shitty, like YouTube, like re- redesigned their resolution. So it's even like a small window in a window when you go back on those old things. Didn't you, um, yeah. your YouTube channel, it was like, you started making YouTube videos when YouTube had kind of first started, no? Yeah, yeah it was like month two or something. Like, it was the only graffiti stuff on there. At that's one point. So no, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like, when I think of Flip the Script, like, I just think of, I think any kid that's ever gotten into graffiti has came across a yeah. hand select video and has, like, watched it over and over, you know what I mean? And talking about, like, the people you got on, that's what it seems like, like, the podcast, you know, it just organically flows. Like, you get this person on and they connect you through that and, like, yeah. it just kind of, like, it validates who's on your stuff in a way, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's exactly the same thing. And I don't know if you guys feel this pressure, because I knew that what I was doing was historic, um, you guys might have a little bit more of a free form to it. Definitely, some people took me aside and were like, yo, be careful that you don't like become a tool for this crew or that crew or like, you know, putting down people's voice. So, like, there's some people in the book, if I hear any criticism of the book, sometimes it's like, yeah, there's some like randos in there that like I don't think deserve it. I'm like, that's cool. Part of the reason the book is important is that we're trying to show two things one is like the individual you know contribution of people who are amazing at it but you're also trying to show that like there's a bigger culture that they're a part of Mm. and the person who's not necessarily like a superstar is just as much a part of that culture and you can almost see the shared quality when you start looking at like you know people who are not as big as the people who are on everybody's a-list you know well the the book you have like places really all over the u.s you have like la chicago baltimore philly seattle new york Mm-hmm. And I feel like, at least from my perspective, you know, New York and L.A., Philly, people, people, it's kind of like more well-known history. Whereas places like Chicago, like I'm pretty ignorant when it comes to the history of Chicago or, or Baltimore. How did you find out about these places? Because, you know, like the book goes really in depth to their history where and it's not yeah. like you can Google like history of Baltimore graffiti and a bunch of pages come up, especially when you were, you know, compiling this. Like then you definitely couldn't do it. So yeah. how did you go about learning about these more obscure uh, scenes? Two things come to mind there. I guess one is that I definitely feel a responsibility even now of like, I call this an anecdotal history. And it's like, it was really important to me that as I put it together, I was trying to edit it and put people in the best light possible, but kind of pick and choose the pieces that they were saying in their voices and put them together in a way that started to tell the whole story. But it wasn't me trying to analyze it and then retell the story and that was important because like the nature of the way that a lot of histories go is like the history of the victor type thing and i was like i didn't want to get drawn into that um but then there is stuff where you're like well if you got to put something down you're risking it right so um how did i go about chicago i guess um one of the writers that i worked with was from chicago um early on and he, he started connecting me with some people. I think I want to say Flickr. Mm. I don't know if you, get, how, you guys, old I was, I was, I was Flickr. I have a Flick, I have a Flickr account yeah. where I upload stuff that to be honest, you've probably looked at. It's okay. like all the, two, it's like 2010 to 2014. I used to just take pictures of everything, but yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. I, we used to look on it. So 2010 Flickr was still, was that like when you started it? Yeah. Around there. Yeah. I want to say that was probably like the tail end of, you know, when I was on there. But yeah, like there was groups on there. Um, Chicago Cold War was this dude that like just exclusively took pictures of gang graffiti in Chicago. Mm. And he would like break down. He was like 
precursor doing what I wanted to do for graffiti, but just for gang graffiti. And I was like, yo, I want to talk about this and do it, but like, I have no authority to do it. Will you help me break it down and like explain it? So there's like a chapter in the, or a section in the Chicago chapter that's like just dedicated to like the symbolism of, of gang graph. And what's cool about that is that when we were doing it, I think most of the Chicago writers knew this, but like, I didn't know this. I don't know if anybody outside of Chicago knew it, but like, in every other city, when you're dissing or ragging someone, you do a tag on top of their tag or you X them out. In Chicago, they would take your tag and then write it somewhere else, upside down or backwards. So, like, you know, they take your name, right? You can't do it with Z because it's just one letter. But <laughs> they take Angel and it would be like the Angel with the A upside down, mm-hmm. like backwards. And then they'd like put your name around town to be like, yo, intimidate you. But in some ways, it was almost like the opposite of, like, the New York mentality of, like, getting yeah. your name up. But what was interesting about that is, like, it made you do other letters than your own name. So, like, Chicago, Philly, L.A., they have, like, a respect for, like, whole alphabets that a, a couple of writers, New York writers have, particularly the old school ones. But I think a lot of New York writers, especially when you're, like, young and twin coming up, like, it's all about this, like, unique signature that's, like, more about the crazy style that's in it than like doing a whole alphabet. Yeah, no, that's it's yeah, because like I said, I don't know anything about uh about a lot of the other scenes that aren't already well known about. They're pretty mm-hmm. much just common knowledge at this point. So when I was you know reading it, it's just like I was like, how does how did he was able to find out all this stuff? It's cool to think about Flickr because I feel like that was such a cool. Like I almost wish that it would it would come back and the strength that it was in, but Instagram kind of like took over all of that stuff. But um which we can talk about later. But I, I was another thing I was thinking about was in in a, in some speech that you gave, you were talking about how you kind of, I guess, learned three major things from from making this book and just I guess, essentially studying the history of hand mm-hmm. styles. And uh, one of them was uh, ego, which is a thing mm-hmm. that just is prevalent throughout all of mankind. But in graffiti, of course, it is one of the, like the, the main things. So what do you what do you think about uh, ego in terms of well, one, all the writers that you met and were able to essentially interview to get, get the knowledge from them, but two, just ego as a factor within the graffiti scene. Yeah, I've listened to a handful of your guys' podcasts, and this is a theme that comes up a lot for you guys in general, right? Like, you guys are both martial artists, mm-hmm. and you both um, have a discipline, right? And the more disciplined you get, the more you have to face the fact that your ego is something can get in the way of your betterment, right? Like, without the discipline, your ego can run rampant. With the discipline, you can start to kind of get a handle on it. There's a point in time where the discipline can... It's like fire. It's like, oh, shit, it gets out of control. And, like, the discipline can make your ego worse, right? Do you know what I'm talking about? This yeah, no, definitely. Um, and, and graffiti, obviously, is like... I mean, it's in that kind of, you know bragging aspect of of hip-hop like to put your name all around is like it it's it's two things like it's one is it's a it's an identity signifier it's like hey i i'm significant and i matter and what's interesting about that is that when it came to be in the 20th century it came to be in the place where people had very little voice and very little tools and i came up in punk rock you guys came up in punk rock right like that DIY nature of like, I can do a lot with a little. Mm. And to some people that looks like 
damage and it looks destructive, but to you, it's actually constructive, not destructive. Again, it's like that fire thing. Like the ego can make it destructive. There's like that that dance, you know, back and forth. But like you know, that to be able to call yourself a king, you know, is you know, there's nothing more egotistical than that, right? Um, but yeah, there's there's it's another thing that was kind of a warning sign from a lot of people who were in the book, and some people didn't want to be in the book. Some people were like, "Yo, I worked for." 20 years to develop my style. I'm not just going to give it away. Mm. And I was like, I, I get that. I'm, I totally respect it. But at the same time, if you don't get it in here, you want the credit for developing it. Like, you know, this is the chance to like tell the story in a way that hopefully if you trust me to, to be respectful of it, we'll try, try to do it right. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's man. Almost everybody I dealt with to a, to a person is amazing. Um, but I'm glad I met them in the instances in the time period that I did. You know how it is? Like, you know, even people that, that you know here that you, like, widely respect. It's like, wow, I'm glad I met you on your best day when you were mature and not on your worst day mm-hmm. 15 years ago, you know? No, definitely. Well, in terms of, you know, a lot of the people say that in terms of writing, there's one of the things that writers say or the reason that they write is just for themselves. Like, they don't want to hear about this. They don't want to hear about that. This is, um, I just do it for myself. This is where I get my personal satisfaction from. Do you think that that's true? Uh, seeing as ego is a huge part of it. And ego, you would think, has to do with, like, not only am I doing it for myself, but, like, you need to see this. I want recognition for the fact that people are seeing this, which is, there's no way around it. You want people to see your stuff. You want to be known as, for the most part, someone who's, you know, doing your thing wherever it is you're doing it. So after... Um, talking to so many writers and really delving deep into it because when you're writing you're not just like there's this well thought out what you're saying you've thought a lot about it what do you think that that's true that um people really do it strictly for themselves we're social animals i don't think anything's strictly one or the other i think a lot of times we live in a society that's pretty binary it's like it's red or it's blue it's republican or it's democrat it's you know uh freedom or it's you know control it's it's not i don't think it's that easy i think that a lot of people have a lot of different reasons for writing you know it's like a lot of people have a lot of different reasons for all sorts of stuff i think the nature of a writer that's writing in 2022 might be different than from someone who was writing in 1972 Mm. um and i think part of that's just like this this conversation can go a whole bunch of different directions it's I get a little uncomfortable making generalizations for like a whole community of people who do this thing. I think in the the talk that you're you're referencing, I was kind of like, listen, it's it's not a stretch to think that like someone who's running around in the middle of the night spray painting their name on walls, like we all have something wrong with us if like you know we're like yo I matter and you're gonna pay attention to me even if it's an alias name and I'm not there like we all want that recognition and like that's a a fascinating subcultural manifestation of that kind of like popping up and then lasting for a very very long time Mm -hmm. um so i think that there's there's a lot going on there but i can't say that like everybody's reason for it is the same reason i think a fair number of people come to it as an art form and i think some people come to it out of a need for attention and some people come to it out of you know a need for you know expressing their anger you know how long have you guys been involved in hardcore? Uh, me since I was maybe twelve. 
And I'm 27. Okay. So, like, the first time you hit... I'm 26. I do that, too. <laughs> I do that, too. Um, the first time that you, like, hit a dance floor and you were like, yeah, I'm going in, your emotions and, like, why you did that were probably different than, like, the last time you did it, right? No, definitely. Right. First time I did it, it was because I went to a random show and there was a pit and I was like, damn, you other fighting... And then I was with my friend. We're both like 12 or whatever. Yeah. And I'm like, yo, if I don't go in this right now, I'm soft. And then I was like, damn, but there's so, like all these dudes are like 200 whatever pounds. And then I was like, yo, I can't be soft. And then I, and I went in and just like punched someone in the face because uh, I thought it was a fight. You know what yeah. I mean? Luckily, I'm like, you know, frail and 12 years old. So they're not going to whatever. It's not going to actually be a fight. And then but that's, that's besides the point. Yeah. So no, you're, you're definitely that's, that right. That is the point. Like, you're definitely yeah. right. From like the first time you do it to the last time, it could be completely different. So are you, are you into punk and hardcore too or are you into different type of music? Yeah. I didn't really grow up with uh, like punk and hardcore music. Okay. Um, I grew up with like different uh, from like what I was going to say actually about the graffiti was uh, I noticed recently that the reason people do it, especially recently, like the the kids that I see starting up in like my neighborhood, like I mentioned a bunch of times on the show from South Brooklyn, mm-hmm. I see that it can be like a neighborhood thing also, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. the mindset of certain, like the ways these writers go about starting because um, I'm noticing like the influences you have in your neighborhood and from the styles to like the way those writers go about hitting certain spots plays a big role and influence on... Um, the kids growing up in that neighborhood you mm-hmm. know what i mean and i've noticed that too like especially like um we know a bunch of younger kids too that their influences for example are from like lower east side graffiti you know what i mean and they they'll approach graffiti in a different way you know what i mean more aggressive more headstrong like just hot spots jock spots as claw mentioned in uh infamy right. and um you know stuff like that so i think it's interesting how it can be like a neighborhood like uh, area type of thing you know yeah i mean that's one of the things that's fascinating like even in the book, especially old school, pre-internet times, is like back in the 70s, if you were young and getting into graffiti, if you were 12 years old, you were just stuck in your neighborhood. And you might just be stuck in like certain blocks because like in the 70s, in, in the 80s, in the crack era, like I heard stories from people who were like, yeah, you, you knew like you were walking this route and it was like not the straightest route to get from home to school or from to get from here to there. So you had like very clustered styles where it was like, this is who I'm around. This is what I see. Now, obviously, you get to like Star Wars era and like grown ass men who are, you know, dodging dogs and jumping barbed wire. Like they're putting their shit on trains that goes from one end of the city to the other. And there's like a conversation that goes back and forth. In that in that talk that I gave to that arts council, I uh, I referenced the beef that goes on in Star Wars between uh, seeing a kid Panama and they're beefing over like the flying eyeball, like who was original to put it on a train first. And this is kind of the fun thing about this project. And the fun thing about the way that I look at learning in general is like, there was no mention of that. That was like something that was lifted, you know, it was a, it was a Rick Griffin graphic from like a rock poster. Mm-hmm. Like, the originality was that they put it on a train, stay high saint, like he was very careful to like face it one direction because he thought that was more original than doing it the same direction as the the TV show logo. And there's an appropriation where it's like, Hey, I took this and made it my own that we put a lot of pride in. Um, and I guess part of what this, this project for me is like looking at that and saying, you should be proud of these things, but at the same time, you're probably better off if you understand the context that you fit in and I don't know. This is 
the nature of like the world that we live in today is like the more things are connected with the internet and at the same time the more we're kind of like separated more individualistic and again i don't think it's an either or i think some of us prefer the individualism some of us prefer the communalism and more often than not you have a blind side of not appreciating the other side um and i guess what i was trying to do is kind of say like i want to dive in deep and then help put this into some sort of context and story and like make that the gift back to people well, well, in terms of their, uh, that was another one of the things you said, which is that there's nothing new under the sun. A lot of uh, graffiti evolves through reinvention rather than invention. We're just taking old styles, mm-hmm. putting a twist on it ourselves for the sake of not directly biting or, mm-hmm. or whatever it may be. And in terms of the graph that's going on today, like the graph that's a lot of the newer writers or people who are painting in New York have drastically different styles from like, let's say, State Your Name era where it was like, it's just it's just like a different approach to graph and a, and a different style. Even even some of the names that are being written are completely completely different. People are writing names that are more like comical and kind of funny real words mm. that uh, probably in that era no one would have probably wrote. And if they did, like maybe they wouldn't have been too respected for it. I don't know. Like it, it wasn't the the like the thing that people were doing. That wasn't part of like yeah. the practice. And uh, in terms of the graph that's going on today, particularly anti style. Like, where does that, I guess, come from? If I was to ask you, since it's like all a twist on on other shit, like, where the where where does that come from? I mean, you're gonna get me in trouble with this one. I don't, <laughs> I don't know, man. At some point, I probably have to say, like, hey, I got old, like, in the last ten years since the book came out, and like, yeah. if this is like, you know, I have three teenage kids, and um. Like, I probably got to go, like, talk to my kids' friends to, like, learn more about that than, like, the people in my own circle because mm-hmm. I'm just not really down with it. I do, I do think there is an interesting uh, – this is going to be a long way around on this. So there's an interesting thing with, like, names. Going back to, like, the pre-internet era, every kid in a Spanish neighborhood, there was, like, one kid writing Flaco, right? It was, like – there's one skinny kid or like, you know, like these nicknames like were kind of like general nicknames that people had. And the more it, the media caught up with it, and this is you – know, I got to be careful to not try to prove myself smart here because <laughs> I don't know if I understand the things that I'm talking about as well as I'd like to. But like this is the Marshall McLuhan, the medium is the message idea. It's like a lot of us think that the medium is the carrier that the message sits inside. But McLuhan came around and said, actually – the medium shapes the message that's inside. The medium is as important or probably even more important than the message that it holds. And once photography started coming into it and once video started coming into it and once internet started coming into it, you get these the, – the distance between generations gets shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. And now you need to have a name to make a name for yourself where you're competing with the entire fucking globe, you know, because like – Neckface doesn't want, like, a kid in Hong Kong writing Neckface, right? Mm-hmm. Like, Snotty was probably the first person that I remember coming out with a name that was, like, um, comical or just, like, like off-putting and strange. Um, and and then there's – but it was the, the mentality those guys have are still graffiti mentalities. But the kind of, like, weird postmodern thing is almost, like, the, the, the sense of humor of, like, what some people would, would – would go into street art. They were like still the mentality of graffiti with that type of a thing. Um, I forget which interview I was listening to recently, but someone was around the same era as me, like late nineties. And it was like, 
revs and cost were like fucking, you know, bananas at that. It was like to put these like, you know, revs fucked Madonna and like, you know, the suicide hotlines. He's like, they were started to like use a fucking answering machine as part of their, their vandalism. Like mm-hmm. that was some next level shit, but like really super fucking geeky postmodern, you know, medium is the message type stuff. Well, um, yeah, in, in terms of like the, 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 you know, there's no, there's no real, I guess, invention. There's just a lot of reinvention. Mm-hmm. Cash foreign smells did the same thing with the, with the answering machine. And pretty sure you can still call it. Oh yeah. You can still call it. And that numbers, that answering machine has been active for kind of a while. That's rad. Uh, what do you think about graffiti as one of the, as one of the last reservoirs for, uh, written penmanship or just, uh, practicing penmanship? Yeah, it's like the blurb from the back of the book. Yep. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's... Um, someone, three people yesterday on Instagram sent me a video to hand select a, of this kid who... Um, I assume it's some form of Asperger's. I'm forgetting the name of it. But he he's he's a hyperlexic, I think is the name of it. And um, he's five years old. And he's sitting in his driveway and his dad's filming him. And he just goes through and he blasts out 10 fonts, like a plotter printer, like with chalk. He's just like, this is Cooper Black. And he's got the serifs, right? And then he just moves straight into another one. Boom, boom, boom. And um, fuck, what was your answer? What was your question? The question was just. (laughs) (laughs) This this kid blew my mind. I I went back to like experiencing that video. (laughs) Just your thoughts on uh, Graph as one of the last forms of uh, practicing penmanship. So I guess my point was that this kid at five years old is like obviously a rarity and has like an amazing gift, but it's not normal for a five-year-old to like learn to write the way that I did or the way that my parents did or freaking my grandparents. I don't know. Have you ever gotten a letter from someone over 65 or 70 or 80 years old? Like the script is amazing. And um, the inspiration for these books is um, these calligraphy books made by Speedball, which used to make um, calligraphy pens. There was a, a method of writing called the Palmer method that like everybody in post-war um, America like learned how to write. And like if you remember your elementary school class, they probably had like those alphabets of scripts. Yeah. Kids don't learn script anymore. Like they just they're like, yeah, we're we're trying to get these kids up to date on X, Y, and Z tests. Mm-hmm. And those tests are punch, you know, like fill in the dots. Like they don't need to learn script. They don't need to write it. And again, going back to the medium is the message thing. I don't know if I've got like a judgment on whether that's a good or a bad thing, but one thing I definitely know is that like it changes the way that we think. Like there's a we have a human operating system that like is not just what we think, but it's the way that we think. And that operating system changed like when Gutenberg printed that first Bible and it was like, yo, you can read this. You don't just have to hear somebody tell you about it. Or they weren't even telling you about it. Oh, by the way, you speak German, they're gonna preach it to you in Latin. And then he's like, oh, no, here it is in German. You can read it yourself. Like, that was a huge freaking shift in, like, the operating system of the human brain when that happened. And we're going through that right now. Like, there's no doubt that, like, the 20th century, you know, the, the four generations or six generations that are alive today are, like, in the midst of these huge changes. Kids today, you know, there's there's a, um, a, uh, a positive or a negative to it, I'm sure. Um, I don't want to be an old man just talking about the negatives on it. Um, But one of the things I would say is, like, even in my own life, let me talk about me instead of my kids, is uh, anxiety is, like, through the roof. Not just for kids, for everybody. Like, for me, like, I wake up in the morning, 
and I try to do breathing exercises and meditation before I like look at my phone and I fail five days out of seven, but then I'll remember and I'll go and I'll try to do it like before I sit down at my desk, I work, I work out of my house. Um, so, so for me, there's a real danger of like, you know, get up, go to my desk, make a cup of coffee and then I don't leave the house for four days. I'm just kind of like, you know, Mm -hmm. um, and I'm like, yo, I got to go sit in the backyard in the sun and breathe for 10 minutes. And if I can do that, then it literally slows down. It's not like I'm trying to, like, mentally drink from a fire hydrant. And that's the way it feels if I'm not. And try to go write a handwritten letter on an 8.5 by 11 piece of paper. Like, it's almost impossible for anybody to do that now because your thoughts are faster than your hand can do the words. And I think there's something to slowing down your thinking so that the quality of your thinking in the words is different. I don't know if it's better, but it's it's you're slowing down the thinking so that it matches your handwriting. And I think that graffiti writers do that in really good ones. It's like watching someone with kung fu. It's like, oh, you know, I used to coach my kids in soccer. And with soccer, the tech, you say it's precision, technique, precision, then speed, then power. That's how you teach a kid to, to kick. It's probably the same in martial arts. Like, you do boxing, or what do you, what do you guys do? Uh, jiu-jitsu. Oh, yeah, jiu-jitsu. So my kids are all doing BJJ, too. Um, yeah, it's like, it's precision, then speed, then power. If you, like, jump in to the tail end of that before you've, like, done the muscle memory, you'll never, you'll, you'll end up building bad habits. You'll have a hole in your game. And I think that we're mentally doing that because of the way that we live with digital tools right now. Um, Again, I don't, I don't want to be a, a crank of an old person, but I do think that like the speed is faster than we've evolved to be, and I don't think that like we're our evolution is going to catch up to the speed of technology. Mm. Technology is going to keep getting faster. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm going to say, uh, damn, what you just said. I'm going to re-listen to that like <laughs> at least ten times before I die. Seriously, um, that was absolutely crazy. And the thought that the thought of us going through a shift like that. Um, is probably I've never really fully thought of that, and it's, I think that you're right. I think that we are going through a shift like that because, on the one end, we're losing the ability to write in the same way that we once had, and it's just going to be lost more and more as the skill of writing gets phased out. Because it's like you could say that uh, learn knowing how to pump gas is a skill, uh, but not if you live in a world of where gas is not used anymore and only electric cars are used. And it's kind of like the same thing. It's like knowing how to write is a skill, but not really if if you don't live in a world that that uh, writes anymore. Like if everything is typed and everything. And I do resonate with the thing you said of like when you check your phone in the morning because you work from your from your home mm-hmm. and feeling like you're trying to mentally drink out of a fire hydrant. Because the, the, the thing that I've experienced, at least, is the fact that, OK, so. If you if you work and a lot of your work comes from like let's say your phone or your computer, the issue is like you might check it for whatever reason, but the thing is like that's it's pretty much an office. So like all the shit that came in from the night before is coming in right then and there, first thing in the morning, getting four hundred thoughts going into your head. And like you said, it makes your your uh your thoughts run fifty times more than they would. It's kinda like for anyone who like their work isn't necessarily associated with let's say a cell phone or a computer. Imagine, imagine every single thing that was said to you throughout the day at your job was actually just said through through your phone. 
and all at the same time. So then when you take your phone off airplane mode, boom, 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 comes in like 90 things. And it, de- it definitely uh, becomes crazy. But the thought of uh, like I, I write every day uh, like uh, on, on paper, mm-hmm. um, but that's just because I feel like it clears my mind mm-hmm. for some reason when I'm if I'm typing and I've tried to do typing instead of actual handwriting, mm-hmm. I don't feel the same effect. Uh, I feel like I'm literally texting someone, right. which I don't want to feel like because I'm trying to unwind from that. You know what I mean? So it's, I mean, for me, it's it's a little bit less about like the the skill set. It's funny. I'm trained as a designer, but the work that I do now is mostly strategy stuff. So if you look at, I've I've kept, I've got bookshelves and bookshelves of just like sketchbooks. I've, I've been in the habit of like keeping my sketchbooks, shit, since I was like 12 years old. So I just have like just, and what I'll do now is like I'll go back. The first like 20 pages of my sketchbook is the best stuff from the previous sketchbook. So they all have like a piece of tape on the back of them with a with you know the date that I started that book. And I'll just, like, I'll go through and I'll be, like, all of these half-thought thoughts or, like, notes from any fucking podcast that I'm, like, you know, trying to, like, transcribe while I'm listening to it to, like, bring these ideas together. I'll take, like, a a day when I go into the next book and I just kind of, like, move those notes into the next one. And for me, what I've noticed is, like, these are unfinished thoughts. They're concepts. Like, with the book, I talk about the book is basically, like, it's, it's, it's a constellation where I don't know what the story is yet. I know that that cluster of stars is a, a group together, but until you put a story to it where you're like, yo, that's Orion, and Orion has a belt, and now you can remember, and now you can actually tell someone else, hey, you see that cluster of stars in the sky? It kind of, a picture of Orion, and now, like, that idea is, like, can, can last for 10,000 years, right? But that group of stars was a group of stars anyway. The The power of putting the story to it is, is what makes it important. I have all these dots that I'm like trying to figure out the story to just in my life. And I realized after I wrote hand selected, that's what hand selected is. It's like, I'm for whatever reason, my personality, I'm just like, I like the stuff that's like on the chaotic edges. And I'm like, let me, let me go check that out. But I have some weird desire to like put it together in some way that, you know, makes sense. And, um, I guess there's a danger to that in some ways. Cause like, if I'm telling someone that's Orion's belt and someone comes back and they're like, yo, you got it upside down. It's actually, you know, something else. It, it, it's part of the risk of just the nature of, you know, living in community, I guess. I don't know. Um, but it's it's what drives me, I guess, a lot. Yeah, that's actually uh, something I was meaning to ask you, but you've been answering that question as we've been going along is... Um, why you the know, fuck would you do this? No, no, I just because <laughs> uh, you know we've talked about this a few times. How graffiti is one of the subcultures where there's not really a financial gain if you think about it. You know, like compared to the other ones. You know, mm-hmm. like for example, like skateboarding or even music or different forms of artistry. You know, um, so my question was to you: Is it more about passion than financial gain? And like I said, it seems like you're full of passion when it comes to all this type of stuff. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's cool that I'm able to do work that integrates this, but it's definitely like my side hustle. Like I've not, you know, uh, you know, if I make a couple extra bucks selling books, like that's a bad. But it's like I've never considered that this was like what I wanted to put my thing into. Um, I don't know why. You know, part of that's because I started it after I was married and had a kid, so it was like, you know, you have to kind of like figure out. You know, this is the stuff that my wife and kids have shared my 
their time of their their version of my time is shared with this you know so like it's definitely you know passion um i think it's rad that more and more stuff that was on the edges stuff that was on you know how do i say this stuff that was um marginal right like on the margins on the edges is more and more interesting to more and more people like that's that's a hopeful thing to me and as you start seeing things um get brought from the margins in something happens and it gets validated that validation can be corny as fuck and it can get cheap in it or it can be like something that that lasts and um or it can be something that you know god willing um i don't end up in the trap where like you know you're the you're the herb who's exploiting it and like you know doing something that's like not cool with it or it's something that's bigger than bigger than what the subject matter is it's about making you big mm-hmm. and um you know that that's whack and I don't, I don't ever want to get to the point where it's like this project i was really you asked me to come on this like a year ago or something we started kind of like um exchanging notes on instagram and you know trade book recommendations and mm-hmm. shit. I actually bought the the history of lessons from whatever. Okay. I actually, I started reading it today, but yeah, sorry to keep going. Um, I've, I've been hesitant to do stuff like this because this project isn't about me. It's about like a hundred representatives that are about something bigger than them. And even a lot of them were like, yo, I don't necessarily, I'm not the representative of my city or this thing. And I was like, that's cool. Like you, you have something to offer and I want to help put that in the context of everything else. So in a lot of ways, I'm really honored that you care to talk to me, but I'm, I'm nervous about, you know, ever making it about me, I guess. No, I totally understand uh, what you mean by that. Uh, but the thing is, I feel like at least, at least with flip the script, it's like, I think you did a pretty good job with uh, showing it for what it is. I don't think that, like I never once thought it was about like, specifically the author mm-hmm. rather it was about the actual documentation and history of hand styles and, and graph from different cities and like you said you're not just showing like the victor you're showing like that alone not not just showing the victor is i feel like a big thing specific like for not doing it the way where it's like just about you rather than it's about the whole because uh especially with graffiti it's no secret that uh a lot of the times just mainly the victor is shown, which mm-hmm. makes sense because the whole thing is like getting props and respect through constant repetition to the point where you're just everywhere. And now you're good at it because you've done it so many times that, you know, so it kind of makes sense to give, you know, give respect to the people who are doing it the most and are doing it the best. But it's also cool to, you know, there's so many people doing it and so many people who have passion and showing showing their side of the story too is, I think, really good. I don't think you have to, in my opinion, wor- worry about oh, uh, thanks, man. that. But uh I also wanted to ask you back to like the whole writing thing. Uh, I saw that on your on your gram, your personal gram, it was like a while ago you had some notes written. Some of them were quotes from different people that inspired you, like you had handwritten them. Uh, have you ever thought or have you ever actually written a, a, another book besides uh, Flip the Script? And if not, have you ever thought about it? Yeah, I probably got one in me one day. Um, it... I'm not sure what it would be. I mean, the the more and more I'm kind of like I'm interested in taking the mentality that I take to the subject matter to a different subject matter and mm-hmm. then having the through line be the way of thinking more than the subject matter. Um, I, I love each and every one of you have contributed to Hand Selected. I love you dearly. 
but trying to deal with a hundred vandals um, over like an extended period of time is difficult to say the least. So like, it, a podcast is freaking brilliant. You guys like, you get them in, you get them out. It's like a couple hours. <laughs> I'm like, the num- my my poor wife for ten years would go visit my PO box and like pick up these yellow. This is the cool thing about this is I have like you know archives of like handwriting samples of everybody it's not just like scans and iphone flicks like they would i would i would try to chase someone and like it would be five years later and i'm like yo the books i gotta print this thing like you think you can send me back an alphabet and i would like put an envelope in an envelope put the postage on it like my i would like send them my package with with the stuff i'd send them and be like all you gotta do is write it up and put it back in the mail like it's done um and so i don't know like until my kids are like out and grown and I can kind of like put some time into it. I don't know if there's like a follow up on flip the script in the works. Um, but I definitely am playing with ideas all the time. Once some of those ideas are cooked, I tend to overcook them before, you know, maybe the, uh, perfection is the enemy of the good is the phrase. Like that might be ideas. You you tend to (laughs) stop the ideas for, a follow-up of the script or just like a different book that has nothing to do with graphics? No, I think just it just in general. I think if you want to find a typo, print 5,000 or something. Like there's that that stuff like keeps me up in the middle of the night. I'm like, ah, you know, I really want this thing to be like perfect for everybody who's out there and make it a gift to anybody. And there's definitely like a little bit of a perfectionist in me that's scared of putting stuff out there because you're just like, man, as soon as you do, you're going to want to like edit it and like – fuck with it a little bit you know so. no I, I definitely feel that we, i mean we both definitely feel that like every time we do an episode especially in, in in the beginning like when we first started doing these like i'd be like yo everything that that i just said was was just so offensive wrong and like the worst thing i could have ever said or it just made me sound like a total fool and like he feels yeah, the I same mean, way even, even like, now like do you yeah, still yeah. listen to them or do you do you just like move on like what re-listen to old ones yeah i I definitely do you do yeah i gotta stop like this dude i'll I'll tell you this is a little bit of a vulnerable story when i first did fifth script in 2013 i was this was before it was like squarespace wasn't out you couldn't sell stuff yourself online without like a little bit more investment and like figuring out i didn't have the personal resources to do it i didn't have the personal skills to do it so i was trying to do the lecture that you guys saw I was trying to, I had this dream of like wanting to go to each city that had a chapter and like do lectures and do like an event and bring people together from those cities. So I tried to do like a Kickstarter and it was like the most nightmarish like experience, like out of body existential like crisis because my, my day job is I was a creative director for years. So like I run photo shoots, but I'm always the guy, I'm not even the guy behind the camera. I'm the guy behind the guy with the camera. So like I could like see stuff and move it around but like i couldn't stop doing that so i'm on camera asking people to give me money and that by itself i was like nervous about and felt whack about but then i was like literally like looking at the camera like trying i was like in my head i was like looking at myself and this goes back to the writing thing Mm -hmm. and the the phone thing um i had to do some serious work before i could like public speak or do something that was on camera and part of it's with the media i'm just like fuck it i'm not going to ever listen to this like i hope it comes off good um anyone that i've offended i I apologize in (laughs) advance (laughs) um but i'm never gonna i'll never listen to this because i'm like i I, 
there's there's too many fucking demons and no, you know, I know. wanting to yeah. think about yourself. It's the ego thing that I was talking about. You know what helps me is I listen to it in double speed. And I feel like <laughs> that makes worst. me sound like less of a fool. I don't know. I, I don't know. That's yeah, what I do at least. Really? I, that sounds uh, like hell. Yeah, I sp- I, I'm 25 right now, and I probably spent 23 years of my life not talking to people at all. And all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, this is a podcast. <laughs> so, like, every time I speak now, I feel like I'm in, like, a DMT trip. I'm like, just, like, <laughs> fucking tripping on, like, this experience. <laughs> do you think that's just your personality? You're just shy? Or? Um, I mean, it's a long story. It has to do with, like, growing up and, like, just kind of keeping to myself. Maybe the neighborhood. I don't know. Just, like, all that stuff. And okay. maybe not really... Um, I don't know, not really having, like, a big friend group growing up, you know what I mean? So I would always just kind of roll with myself. Mm-hmm. And now I'm meeting, like, hundreds of people. And it's actually really sick. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? It helps with all that. It's, like, chapter two. Yeah. <laughs> it was, like, yeah, a different yeah. life. Uh, how did you get into How did you get into reading? Mm. That's a weird question. Um, do people not read anymore? Like, I, f- I mean, <laughs> I have a solid amount of friends. And uh, no, not really. Yeah. I mean, not in my, 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 not in my small group. Yeah, um, I guess, I guess it's it's true. It's it's probably, man. I I miss a subway commute. Now that I work at home, I like lost like an hour and a half of reading a day that I was blazing through stuff. There's nothing better than having like a forty five minute like ride one direction and then back. Like I was just crushing books for years. Um, I took a job that moved us away from New York and up to the Boston suburbs for a couple of years, and I was driving. And it was the first thing I noticed was like, man, I'm not reading anymore because like I would drive in early, drive back and like I'm not sitting on the couch reading because I had a young family and stuff like that. And I was like, man, the subway commute was such like a a gift to my my personal reading time. Um, How did I get into it? I guess I just grew up in a in a family that loved and respected books. Um, My. My parents' generation, or my my dad was the first generation to go to college. His dad was a steel worker, worked at Bethlehem Steel in Pennsylvania. My mom's mom, my mom's dad was a, uh, my mom's dad was a history teacher, and he went to college after World War II on the GI Bill. Um, And when I was growing up, he retired in the late 70s and like all through the 80s up until eBay crushed his business. He was a used book dealer. Mm. So I had really fond memories of going to this barn that he had in um, Pennsylvania, like just over the Delaware, like eastern Pennsylvania. And um, it was a giant barn. And he used to do buying trips down near Princeton, New Jersey, where I grew up. So he would come down like once a week to like, buy estate sales and books and shit like that. And I would go with him to buy stuff. And he like, because it was like a small business, he knew very specifically, like I've got a, I got a customer who will buy this book and he'd like make individual choices on individual books. And when I grew up, he was that generation, um, that post-World War II generation. Like, I don't know if you've experienced this or seen this, but like those guys would like build bars in their basements and stuff like that. Like, like everyone was kind of a master of none, you know, like a a a, pract- a, a generalist, jack of all trades. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and there's something about that generalist uh, of like, you know, I'm gonna you know learn the carpentry, build this thing, build my 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 little like, you know, manhole cave thing filled with books and collectibles, and you know, he would go through these different uh, periods where it was like he'd collect. Uh, 
cowboy and Indian stuff or like, you know, nautical themed stuff or whatever. It was like basically what going to a tattoo shop feels like now. That was like his space was like this type of thing. And, um, and I guess the collection stuff and the book stuff was like just always around. So I think it was like really pretty deep, um, in me. Um, I think I sent you an email, the, uh, his, my mom's brother, his son, he grew up collecting, um, in Pennsylvania, any day that it would rain, he would walk cornfields. And back then, they used to plow fields. Now they, they do a like a spray. But when they plowed them and it would rain, he would just walk hunched over for 50 years. And he ended up with a collection of like 100,000 arrowheads. So crazy. So he's his he turned his basement into like this museum. He has like Boy Scouts come through. And he he's like an amateur historian that like has done so much work of learning about the local the local you know history of the the Lenape tribes that, that lived in that area of Pennsylvania how did he get into that just finding these treasures in the ground when he was a kid like when you pull like a perfect arrowhead out of the dirt like I've only found like a, as a kid like broken ones I have like a little pot of like broken ones but like when you find a perfect one you're like wow this thing was in some guy's hand 5,000 years ago, exactly the way this yeah. is now. And it was probably the cause of, like, many deaths of, like, different animals and stuff. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because, like, from finding the different spots, like, he could tell, like, oh, there was an encampment here or there was, you know, a place over here. You kind of, like, piece these things together, which, again, I didn't realize until after I did the book. I was like, holy shit, I'm doing the same shit with like tags mm-hmm. it's the same type of thing where it's like i'm hunting for these things and i'm like wow that's a really beautiful one how does it fit in how do we tell a story and kind of piece the thing together so in terms in terms of like reading and stuff you you were kind of always into it, it seems yeah um yeah i mean i definitely through time i've built out like a, a collection of certain stuff like i'm drawn to and i read a lot of economics and philosophy and theology i'm kind of in that kind of ppne type of a space um i like a lot of that that type of stuff mm-hmm. i have a fair number of you know design books and art books and history books and stuff like that as well but like most of what i read is kind of in that um esoteric space i guess so uh why why theology and do you think that has any place in in our modern day society anymore besides like influencing a lot what of a stuff stilted, that goes down? what a stilted question well i, I mean like <laughs> I mean, like, the fact that it was, like, such a, it's, like, such a, back a few eras ago, it was, like, the main thing in life, as as to now, that's not, a, like, the main thing in life anymore, so do you think that that's being Where we out? live in the West. Yeah, that's not. true. Um, I mean, I think, you know, the, the nature of, um, yeah, I guess to, to answer your question, why am I interested in it, because there's at least in the common era, there's, you know, uh, 2,000 years of writing that, like, makes up the majority of our history of books. So this is something that was really important to the history of civilization mm. that I think we probably undervalue. And maybe that's pr- maybe that's part of the reason why I'm into it is, like, similar to the, to the tags thing. It's like, hey, that was something that I felt was undervalued and not really looked at. This is something that I think was really, really important to society that like we generally don't value anymore um so maybe that's part of the interest um i think there's also just like 
I'm really interested in how how we work. I, I read a lot of psychology. I'm super into it for the last five years. Been reading a lot of like the behavioral economics stuff. I don't know if you, you and I trade book recommendations. So if I'm speaking shorthand, like have you read Kahneman and Tversky? And no. Do you know who those guys are? No. Um, I won the Nobel Prize in economics a couple of years ago. So like the idea behind behavioral economics is really big in the last couple of years. And it's basically that like we're not entirely rational. Economics kind of ignored the emotional aspect of man for a long time. And it was like when you start looking at the development of even our brains, there's kind of like the instinct part of your brain, the emotion part of your brain, the logic part. And economics was like really good at understanding the logic part. But the behavioral economists and the psychologists are like, hey, guess what? You don't actually live in that intellectual part most of the time. In fact, you make up your minds based on your emotion on something, and then you justify it with the intellectual part. Mm. Um, so I'm a really huge fan of um, – did I recommend Jonathan Haidt to you? I'm not sure. The problem with the problem with uh, my – Oh, Personal. your Instagrams is like there's just there's just a lot when I whenever I put like book recommendations, yeah, each person will probably send me like five to ten, and before you know it, I have like I don't know at least fifty recommendations. So I, I pick and choose as it goes on, and I also have like a pretty long list that I'm working on myself. So then you know I just go back and forth. Yeah. That's why I just got to the the history of the lessons from, you know the the one that is you recommended Harry, to me, Ariel and uh, yeah, it was Durant, like two right? two people, yeah. Right. So I just started that one today. But uh, what what do you think you've um. What do you think that you've gained from uh, from the stuff that you've read? It's something that I kind of struggle with myself because sometimes I'll be like, "Yo, my, like, how much more is this? Is this just like useless, uh, very specified knowledge? Um, how much more do I have to read? What is this even fucking doing? I'm wasting mad hours." So, what do you think about that? What do you think you've gained? Uh, well, I'm an amazing podcast guest for one, right? <laughs> like, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know, I don't. I guess I don't look at it as a gain, right? Like, all right, let's take your, your BJJ. Yeah. What, if you could ask yourself, what have I gained by BJJ? And then you'd be like, okay, that's it. I'm at whatever belt I'm at, I'm done. Or you could be like, no, I'm just in love with learning, so I'm just going to keep going. I'm probably in that space in a couple of spaces in my life, and I'm trying to now take that mentality and apply it to other parts of my life because I think, you know, it's the – the open mindset versus the closed mindset. Like the closed mindset is like, I'm good at this. This is my identity. I suck. You know, it's like, it's, it's one or the other. It's very binary versus the other one, which is like, this is kind of what I was saying about the, you know, geez, I'll, I'll fuck with a book forever. If I don't put a deadline on it and get it out. It's like, you know what? It's, it is what it is. It's as good as I can make it. Um, on to the next one. Like, you know, it's, everything's a learning experience. There is no failure. There's only learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, there's only opportunity. And I guess with learning, I guess because I do believe, and this might have something to do with it, I probably am a little bit more traditional or like an older generation mindset of like, I do believe that there is some sort of like actual structure that the world is following. There is some ultimate truth. And that's a really contentious idea in like a postmodern 2022. Like, but because I believe that that exists, I believe that you can piece together pieces of that understanding without ever actually touching it, but you can kind of figure out the direction of things. What do you mean without ever actually touching it? Well, I don't think that we uh, – there's that old adage about um, the blind man and the elephant. You know that one? Mm-hmm. There's, you know, there's, there's six blind men 
um, trying to describe an elephant. And uh, one of them's like, oh, uh, an elephant's like a spear because he's got the tusk. And one of them's like, oh, the elephant's like, um, you know, a, a, a tree with big leaves because he's got the ear. And someone's like, oh, the elephant's like a, a tree because he's got the leg. And there's a very postmodern idea of like, oh, see, truth is like the elephant. None of us have a full view of it. There, there's a secret story behind that story, which is even to use that as an example assumes that whoever's telling the story has a view that's outside of it, right? So like there, you have to know what an elephant is to use that analogy, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. So I guess I'm in that space of like, I, I think I'm probably one of the blind men, but I believe that someone out there somewhere can see what the elephant is. And I guess if I'm trying to learn from more perspectives more and more, like I can understand a little bit deeper in one space and then go to another space and get another angle on it. Um, so I guess that's kind of the my attitude towards learning in general. Um, it's funny because like my, my kids right now, my oldest is uh, graduating high school and looking at college. And I'm really big on education but I don't know if I'm really big on college. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know if I'm really big on, maybe, maybe I'm not even big on education. I'm really big on learning, but I don't know if I'm big on... Um, edu systematic education. Yeah, I don't know if I would say systematic education, but because there's some things that the system, if you go back to martial arts, someone who can teach you or go back to, uh, shout out to Hush again for like, and... and and hence who were like teaching me like the basic stuff when I was starting to learn hand styles. There's a system that like I might not be mature enough to understand why I'm in that system. And in that case, education might be good for someone. Like learning how to do prints before you do scripts, right? Those types of things, like you have to have a a humility to know like there there might be a reason there. But I think a lot of our education system now is more about specialism than it is about generalism. It's more about giving you a um, credential so that you can then plug that credential into some place in society where you can kind of like win within that system in that game. And I think education does that really well, but I think that learning is a little bit more of a generalist. I, I like more of a generalist thing, which is like, hey, whatever this is that I'm learning, like there might be no system that you can apply this to, but my friend who's you know a great builder i'm like holy shit like i wish i understood engineering and building i wish i was just a fucking carpenter the way that like a rudimentary carpenter can fix shit that i can't shit i can't fix like going back to the car thing it's like you think about the people who bought the first cars like you almost had to learn how to be a mechanic to like you know to wind up the fucking model a and like you know you'd you'd like buy a car and buy uh you know a mechanic to live in your your stable or whatever it was like there, there's something wild about like that specialization that we went into it with industrialization that i think we've lost a lot of that generalized knowledge that i'm kind of obsessed with right now yeah no definitely i think that uh it's important to have a generalized knowledge because we do live like you're saying in, in a specialized world where if you're not doing that, you're essentially kind of not really going to survive as you're not playing the game the way the rules are set up for you. Um, the rules are set so that specialization is key. Uh, you have to be a specialist in something, which I think is good to be a specialist in something um, rather than like a generalist. But I definitely think there is a place for 
for generalized knowledge. Um, and in terms of like the systematic education thing, like my personal experience with uh, systematic education, I don't even like that word because it just sounds like I'm shitting on education. Right. But uh, just in terms of like the schooling system is that, and I was actually going to make a post about this, like on my, on my personal whatever it was, it made, I didn't get into reading for a while because, uh, and, and my father reads a lot. And the reason I didn't get into it, looking back on it now, was because I thought that if you were a reader, um, if you were, like, especially a younger person who read, you're, like, the epitome of a sucker. That's what I thought. Because I thought that you're a conformist and uh, you're not able to see outside of the, the spectrum that has been laid for you. So, like, you know, just tying along with it, if you do your, if you read the pages they tell you to read, you're, like, a conformist fool who, who wasn't able to, like, see how to get get past that, get past that, like... You had to do it because you weren't able to think of any other way to, to not do it. So now not only that, but now if you read on your spare time, not only are you a conformist fool, but now you got tricked into thinking that this is something that you like, which is truly insane. Like, that's what that's what I thought. So I was like, no way in hell I'm ever going to read anything because then what would I even that would be crazy. Right. So that's what I thought, which is not what I think anymore. But I thought that for the longest time. And um uh, not that I like regret thinking that because obviously whatever it made me who I am, whatever. But like, I think that it, uh, when I look back on it, I think it closed a lot of opportunities off that I am unaware that it closed off because I never experienced them because coming from that mindset, I also closed off a bunch of other things. Like someone sitting next to me and fuck that person and fuck this person because they're just like this, which means they're also conformist fools. Like they probably read books like that kid over there. Um, and I think that that's something that could be, maybe fixed or maybe it was just my personal issue but maybe something that could be fixed with uh the way we go about educate educating people because it's like not at least in the school that i went to it's not like cool to be understanding what the teacher's saying you're actually like super whack and you don't have your priorities straight that's that's i you're guess my about grade school or high school or grade college? school high school and for me it was going early, early on in college same thing like um so i think that that's something that could could be but something that i think is really cool um relating it to like the podcast and graffiti is like when we've spoken to people like i'll just think of some like uh, hurt or uh ch uh nove uh jest um there's, there's a lot of them honestly it's you know s s distort uh but a lot of graph writers and even skaters like we, we talked to steve caballero a few months ago mm -hmm. and um you know steve caballero or like andrew wilson people who young kids are not going to associate them with like conformist fools and mm. they're going to associate them with like the highest level of that subculture, highest level of skateboarding, highest level of graph. Like you think of no, if you don't think of a, at least I wouldn't have when I was, let's say 15, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have thought of a conformist fool. I would have thought as like a graph writer, like a bomber. And, uh, you know, and I think that that maybe would have helped me hearing these people and their ideas to know that, I don't have to think just like in one way because even the people who are in within the graph scene or the skate scene or the hardcore scene have other interests. It's not like just graph. It's not like mm. just skating. They have other interests and they all they also do have like general knowledge. And I kind of came up thinking that it wasn't it wasn't that way. So I went out of my way to like not be that way. What do, what do you think? In what do you think planted that seed in you about kind of the hatred for conformity? Was it an experience when you were young or was it a relationship with your parents or a school from when you were 
a kid. I mean, I, I come from the punk rock space too, so yeah, I, yeah. I think it's a pretty normal thing for anyone who's into punk or graffiti or you know anything that's like not from early hip hop for sure. Now that's like such a hip hop's like the main culture. I'm not sure if that's still as much. Um, but again, like anyone on the margins, I think that like you're like yo, there's a the chaos that's out here, the individualism that I see in this, that, and the other thing. That's not like what's in the center of the society that I know. It, was was it a an, a an attraction or was it a rejection? Yeah, I really don't know. All I know is that uh, I just um, I, I mean. I feel like it's normal for like if you're a kid you could put into a situation that you're really overly forced like they say like anything that's like all like two things that are opposite if they're pushed to their extremes become similar um and i kind of think that it's like you push someone to such an extreme on some like Taoist shit like once it goes to the climax it can only it can only go down and like you get you push someone like this image of school is this and this is what's good and being a professional is and then you're like yo this is everything that i actually don't want so I think that uh, has something to do with it, but I definitely remember from like a, a young age, like when I first started listening to n- not even just like hardcore punk, but just like any any, any type of other music, or especially if they would say some like nonconformist shit, I thought it was a sick. Like uh, like in Gigi Allen has a lyric where he's like, "You hate me, I." Hate you started with Gigi Allen. No, when no, like twelve years old. No, no, but Gigi Allen's like you. You're like a nonconformist. Like you're like. <laughs> You had to have like a gateway drug before you're like, fuck it, I'm going all the way to GGL. Well, like, no, no. You started with like Rage Against the Machine, right? I, I, like, I, I started with like Iron Maiden. All right. But like, I don't really listen to GGL like that, but he has this one song where he's like, you hate me, I hate you. You never understand the things I say or do. Fuck you or some shit like that. Uh, and I, I listened to that when I was like super young and I'm like, and I'm so whatever, young. But like when I was even younger and I remember being like, yo, this is, this is it. Like, this is the sickest like uh like the message i guess and going going further like you and when you when you speak on flip the script and graph how a lot of writers will have like social problems like i don't think it's necessarily healthy to think that because you're gonna just have problems yeah gg's not your model for most people yeah you're gonna have (laughs) if he is it's probably still not healthy not not (laughs) even like gg allen just like that idea of uh of like fuck the entire world yeah i think that's just gonna cause you mad problems and I think that that's kind of caused me mad problems. I don't think it really brought much. I mean, it definitely brought some good, but you know, you never know like what else could have been. That's what I, that's what I think. Yeah, no, I was gonna actually agree with what he's saying about the fuck the world mindset because I've been on that for a long time. Like uh, I've spoken about it on my like personal podcast. Like um, we did an episode of my life in a way. <clears throat> And uh, I should listen to that one before I came on. Yeah, that one's crazy. Um, <laughs> how I grew up, kind of like just having one friend that was into like um, you could say conspiracy like uh, theories, where like pretty much my whole mindset, the foundation was like fuck the government. I don't trust anything they say or do. Mm. Like uh, fuck the world too. Like fuck society because no one knows. Like oh, you got blood for blood lyrics like, going on. Yeah, right? like nobody knows like <laughs> what I know. You know what I mean? Like all these people are dumb. All these people are sheep. You know what I mean? And uh, it took a long time for me to kind of break out of that mindset. You know, and um, kind of have an open mind on the world. So like I know that the more you feed that, like fuck the world, fuck society, fuck people. Like that's kind of the answer of what um, I was talking about earlier. Being like antisocial. That was a big part of it. You know what I mean? Just being like, yo, these people, like they're so dumb. Like they're just walking around mindless. They don't know anything that I know in a way. You know what I mean? And uh, yeah, so it's not good to feed that dog in a way. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm going to get a little geeky here, and, but it's fascinating to me when you look at just like the going back to the Marshall McLuhan and kind of the history of pop culture. I was watching a movie, an old Paul Newman movie. Um, I, like, I like old movies um, called HUD. And um, Paul Newman's a, uh, I think he's a, an, a cowboy whose dad's like a, they own oil fields or something. I could, this is a little while ago, so if I'm getting the, the details wrong, you'll forgive me. Um, but the whole story is like Paul Newman, I want to say this was like 1960 that this movie was made. And it's almost like one of the very first anti-hero stories where you're like, you're like, oh, wow, the good guy and the bad guy are the same dude. Like he's a shitty character, but he's so fucking cool in this movie. He's like that that young Paul Newman, you know, cool hand Luke era type of a dude. And um, Paul Newman apparently, the, the whole story is kind of like, his mother had died before the movie was going and he's living with his father and he's got his nephew and, and I think his, his brother had died and that's why they're kind of like raising the kids. So there's like these three men in a house and the fa- the grandfather's trying to be a good influence on the kid and the kid's looking at Paul Newman um, as like his model of a man. And like the opening scene is like him having an affair with this woman. He like comes out of her house in the, in the morning because the kid's sent to like pick him up and he's like walking out of the house as the woman's husband comes in and he's just a lech. He's just, he's, he's a, he's a, he's not a great guy. And, um, Paul Newman was terrified that like when that movie came out, all these teenagers would have like posters like this on the wall of like him in that character. And for him, this was like a really human, really awesome story. And he was the perfect guy for it. But it was like the, what we were going talking about earlier. It's like the the operating system of the culture is changing. It was like, wow, the antihero is now so important in like the year 1960 that even the guy who was playing it didn't realize that the value had shifted, and he was kind of like turned off by that and like almost like, man, I don't know how I feel about my involvement in that and like where we're going. And that's not to say that the world's going to hell, I'm not, I'm, but. It is to say that do- shit does change. Like our our view of those things does change, and we definitely have grown up. And if you grew up in that kind of like you know, I'm kind of like the tail end of Gen X. The the optimism has turned to a cynicism, has turned to a pessimism, and like the number of kids like my kids' ages who, you know, I don't want to get into conspiracy or politics on on this shit, so I want to be careful what I say, but like. Environmentalism is important, but the nature of raising kids who are seven years old to feel the responsibility for that, I question. So while I do think that we need to raise them to have responsibility for it, I'm like, what the fuck are we doing to them? Like, like this shit is like, there's a lot of heavy shit going on in the world right now. And I don't think that like the nature of the way that we're trying to like get them to be the, you know, Whitney Houston, I believe the children of the answer, like. Yeah, but that's a, a hopeful, optimistic version of this. We've now moved into like, yo, you got a lot of this heavy shit that you guys got to figure <laughs> yeah. out because all the old people are fucking it up. And I don't know if that's like – I understand why that has like – the combination of those things has turned into like fuck you in society too. Um, it, I mean the answer to to – the answer to that is, you know, I don't know, play more bad brains, listen to HR, like, you know, try to keep the PMA. Like, it, I tell my kids, it's like, listen, you you need to be responsible, 
but you need to be responsible not for the world, for yourself. You need to treat people you come across with love and respect, but the only one you can change is you. You can't change even even your friends. You, even if it was on yeah. a personal one-to-one relationship, mm-hmm. you still can't change other people. There's no way you can fucking change Putin. Like, yeah. I don't want my kids stressing about that. <laughs> yeah, no. I do want my kids stressing about the fact that, like, you know, the fucking uh, senator t- are trying to, like, draft fucking women in the future under the guise of equity. I'm like, yo, if you're not bugging out that, like, that shows that we're preparing for a war with a country that's vastly outnumbers us, like... I'm all for equity, but like I'm for equity when you're your own individual and you're not fucking cannon fodder. Like, True no, no, I'm sorry, I didn't. Fodder. I didn't mean to get into the <laughs> politics and that shit. But <laughs> yeah, no, I think definitely if you're like a 13 year old right now, you've taken on a lot of crazy worldly issues in the past few years, <laughs> like of a whole like pandemic, you could say, like a World War Three, like a like a social justice issues like a lot of stuff has been going on so yeah, like it's heavy. you're gonna have like bags under your eyes and like a receding hairline as like a premature puper puperbescent boy yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh what was i gonna say yeah about the pma um i think that's very important because like i said um i spent a lot of the majority of my life like up until recently honestly like uh thinking i could change the world you know what i mean and like getting a like not aggressive but like like it's it, like affected my like my aura in a way because i like thought i could change the world through just sheer tightness you know what i mean right. and uh, i realized recently that tightness um, is that what you said yeah i don't know just like tight- anger yeah like anger uh, okay All right. and uh <laughs> and i realized that did yep. you ever make anyone smile you're like yo that dude's so angry he made <laughs> he made me more positive i'm gonna change the way i'm living maybe without <laughs> knowing yeah maybe that'd be like that's not what i want to be or so what something. changed for you recently um just realizing that you have to live through example and like an example is not being angry and judgmental you know what i mean mm-hmm. so and i think that works out a lot better because i believe in manifestation and like law of attraction so like uh, i think what you feel and think attracts your reality you know sure. what i mean so uh, yeah that's pretty that's, much uh I mean, HR got PMA from uh, Napoleon Hill. You know who that is? Yeah, no. thinking garbage. Yeah, Napoleon Hill was the guy who coined the phrase "positive mental attitude," and that was like his whole thing was like this, like uh, manifestation thing. I don't know if I'm I'm on that wavelength entirely, but I think there's something something to it. Again, like I don't I'm not scared of reading stuff that I don't agree with. Yeah. Um, some of those things I won't talk about on camera, but like you know, it's like you know. I've got a copy of the the Bible and the Bhagavad Gita and the Satanic Bible. Like, you know, my mom's not psyched that I own the Satanic Bible, but I'm like, you know, I'm not threatened by it. I don't yeah. think there's a curse on me. Like, I'm kind of interested in what... Yeah, exactly. And I think that's the way to live, honestly, is to have everything and just take what you want from everything. You know what I mean? Like, everything's out there. Why not be interested? Like you said, just learning. Mm-hmm. It all comes down to learning, you know? Uh, what, what do you think about... Uh, I know that... 9-11 happened when you were, uh, I think you were still in school or you were just on the graduating end, I believe, and uh, you were helping out, volunteering and in, in Ground Zero and all that stuff. So what, what can you say about that? Um, yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> when I wrote you like, oh, here's some stuff that's happened in my life, I didn't realize I was going to like, I don't think of that as like one of the big bullet points in my life, but when it goes back, it, it, it obviously was. Um it happened on a Tuesday. I was living on the waterfront in Williamsburg at the time. And um, my roommate called me up and was like, yo, go to the roof. And um, we watched this 
they, they were both on fire and we watched them fall from the rooftop. Um, and, uh, now my wife, my girlfriend, she was stuck downtown and she stayed with a friend downtown cause like they, they locked it down. Um, and I went into the city the next day and picked her up and brought her back to Brooklyn. So that was Wednesday. And then Thursday, um, a good friend of mine called me up. He was a school teacher at the time. He was like, yo, put on your work boots. We're going down. And, um, he just fucking Jedi mind tricked like every, every police barricade. He was like, you know, these are not the droids you're looking for. And we just like walked from, you know, Chelsea Piers all the way down into the, the pit. And we ended up, you know, working down there for a couple of days until we got exhausted and kind of left. And then the, what happened was the, the civilians who were down there, there were like firefighters, police, and then there was like a shit ton of iron workers. And um, my good friend, he's one of these construction generalists. So he's like, I'm going to go find a Sawzall. And he, like, ended up, like, in the pit. And I ended up, like, standing on the docks down by the um, financial center, like, just, like, moving boxes of whatever. The, it was so weird. It was, like, they were just, like, sending, like, every company, every, you know, everyone who had anything, they were just, like, sending whatever they had. So it was, like, boxes of, like, fucking Levi's jeans and boxes of shovels and boxes of just whatever. And I think this is the same skill set that caused me to, like, organize this. I ended up, like, migrating my way to the end of the the line of this, like, you know, human chain and just fucking organizing, like, the, the warehouse of all these tools. So I was, like, in the back of, like, a cozy restaurant. Oh, there was this brand called Cozy, C-O-S-I. It's, like, sandwiches and shit. And they, like, we took it over and, like, turned it into this warehouse. And literally I was there, like, handing out hard hats and, like, masks to firefighters for like two days um eventually left and then a group of students that were down there ended up like getting um permission from the mayor's office and they made these passes and we would like trade them off because it was like locked down and if you had a pass you could go down so like over the next couple of weeks we would kind of work in shifts and eventually that moved to the burger king that's on the south side of the pit and basically we were making coffee and like taking care of like dudes who were working down there like all of all, everyone who was down there working in the pit they were scared to leave because it was hard to get in and out of the security so they would stay there for days and we basically like turned this burger king into a triage where they could like sleep in these booths upstairs and like we would do food and what was weird is that and this is kind of the cool diy nature of like i'm probably more on the individual side than the collective side but that said, I'm, I'm really into voluntarism. So it's like, you know, I think that people coming together in voluntary efforts is like the, the perfect community situation. Red Cross and Salvation Army, they could do only so much. And they had, literally had regulations where they couldn't come close because they didn't know if it was like poisonous or whatever. So there was like hot food like 20 blocks north and they couldn't get it down there. So like all these civilians that because we had these passes, we would literally just like do runs of food back and forth for like the first couple of weeks until it was a weird thing where it was like, Oh, get in where you fit in. Like the people who are there who are doing like real work, they can't leave. The people who are making the stuff, they have regulations and can't come in. And we just kind of like, you know, showed up with work boots on and kind of like figured out how to, how to help. What, what did you, you um, 
No, I was just gonna ask, like, what did you notice in like the spirit and character of the people there that were like trying to help and like little like details that you noticed that really like stood out to you from that moment? Because hmm. like it's a big thing uh, when people talk about that day, how all of a sudden people were so connected all over the city. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like New York, they said, felt so united. It didn't matter who you were, like what color, what religion, nothing. Like in a way, you know. So what did you did you experience any of that? Yeah, I, I think there was definitely a, a nature of um, togetherness that was that was heavy. Um, there was also a paranoia, like the number of times that like I was, you know, within just like the first couple of days or weeks. Like I remember that first. You you were growing up in the city at the time. I mean, I was like five years old. Yeah, I was I was living in Brooklyn, and my whole window was uh, full of smoke and papers were all over the. I was living the wind in. Wind came down to South Brooklyn. Yeah, I was in. Uh, I lived in Park Slope at the time, so oh, it just yeah. all traveled through that neighborhood. Yeah, I remember actually having friends who were staying. They left because the smoke was so bad and they came to stay with us in North Brooklyn. Um, there, there definitely was like that first day, like you were like, shit, you felt like a plane was going to fall out of the sky at any moment, like for the first day or two or whatever. Um, and then there was definitely like, you know, those false alarm scares and stuff like that. But there was also definitely a spirit of people looking out for one another um that was palpable it was real um and then you know maybe this is part of my conspiracy shit like i i have a, I have a folder of photographs that i took like i got f pictures of the the towers like falling in sequence um but i also i took a shit ton of photos at the time because it was freaking me out when there was like flags everywhere I'm like where the fuck are all these flags coming from like I have pictures of bootleg T-shirts in Chinatown where, like, within, like, three days, it was, like, I survived the towers falling. And there was, like, I don't know if you've ever seen that shit. Like, um, Espo did a, uh, a bootleg one of them years ago where it was, like, um, save the drama for Osama type, type shit. Like, that was, like, making fun of these bootleg Chinatown shirts that people were, like, yo, someone was, like, printing T-shirts, like, quickly. And, like, that shit kind of, like, waked me out a little bit. Um, so yeah, there was a, there was a weird, um, combination of like people coming together and, um, being together with a sadness and a little bit of a paranoia and, you know, a little bit of like, yo, what's, what's going on, you know, in the bigger picture here. How, um, uh, I keep going. Sorry. No, that's good. How, um, far away do you think we are from something like that occurring to the United States specifically? I guess New York specifically, again, because obviously things have changed since. It's more like security got amped up, whatever, whatever. Um, how f how far or close do you think we are? And uh, I guess you could speak a little bit on, like, the fragility of our system and how sh quickly shit can uh, just, like, flip. Um, I'm, I'm completely unqualified to answer the first part of that question. I, don't, I have no idea. Uh, I'll say this. Personally, I decided back then that I was like, well, I guess this is what life is like. I've had two of those moments. One was then where I was like, well, I'm going to live here. Like, this is this is what it's going to take to live here, and I'm going to live here. So um, that happened September 2001. My wife and I were dating for about two months, and we got married in November 2002, one year later. Um, and we're still married, and we had three kids. Um, but it was like, there was a real, like, it was kind of like the World War II generation thing. I was like, well either shit's going to fall apart and this relationship's not going to work or we're going to choose to make it work and make it work. And she and I both have that type of a 
mentality where it's like, is this the right person? It's the right person. Okay, let's go. Um, so I think it solidified that and certainly made that happen a lot faster than it would have otherwise. Because especially I was a senior in college. I was like, I got married at 23 years old. Um, so the, 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 the realness of what life was was put into contrast with the realness of how close death was. Mm. And I think that was, that was a, a moment that, that was like, all right, you know, it's time to grow up. Um, and then that happened again. Um, I had a brief, I don't know if I mentioned this when you, you were asking questions about my story, but I had a brief uh, bout of cancer in 2008 or nine. Um, and that was, I, I'm so blessed and uh, um, I had it so easy. Like, you know, I didn't have like a, a long struggle with it or anything like that. It was like, oh, that's weird. You're young, nip it out. All right, you better go for radiation for a couple of weeks and nothing ever happened again. So like I was, I was super young and easy and, and things like that. But psychologically, you still go through that like dark night of the soul of like understanding your mortality that like you you just don't think about most of the time and the combination of those two things what's weird is when you have those experiences how unbelievably strong it is and then the half-life of the emotion like you know disappears a little bit at a time and i remember i've got journals of like after 9-11 of being like knowing that that feeling was going to fade and like almost being angry that the reality of like what was so real was going to become less real in the future. So like something about trauma is is revealing of like a, a truth that I think is bigger. Um, and you cho- you have to choose what you do with it. You know, I think that's another book. If I've if I've uh, recommended to you is uh, Victor Frankel, Man's Search for Meaning is like one of my favorite. I, you books. did. Rick. I'm going to read that one next time. And that's you know if you guys. Or if the listeners aren't familiar with that, Viktor Frankl was a psychologist, a Jewish guy from Vienna who uh, was wrapped up in the Holocaust. He survived four Nazi death camps, and uh, and ultimately, like the real struggle, aside from all of the human indignities, you know, just the the the, the horrible treatment and, and torture, was this idea of like. Is this just fate? Do I have? Do I not have any agency at all? And you know, there's this quote in the book that says, um, "Between stimulus mm. and response, there is a space. Yeah, and in that space lies freedom." And his conclusion was that, like, you have a choice of how to deal with whatever this is, even if what it is is a bullet in a trench. And reading that book is just like. It, it's, I mean, even just saying that now, like I was re- rereading a, a portion of that yesterday and it's just like, it cuts me to the core. I'm just like, Ugh, you know? Yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> he, he, he what well, he refers it to it. He refers to it as like the supreme, like the like supreme choice, the last of the human freedoms that you can make to pretty much like dictate your reaction, uh, to that. Honestly, whenever I read, um, those Holocaust books, it's like the most crazy shit ever. Well, what's so crazy is you go back to the anger issue of, like, all of us who are angry. Like, this is the nature of psychology in general. It's like you can be steamrolled and let someone walk all over you, or you can let every little thing make you angry and want to fight them. But either one of those things is a response that you didn't choose. That you didn't choose. That you didn't choose. It's 
it's giving your choice to the other person, you know, to find your button and, and make you react the way that they want. And, um, you know, if you're like me and the rest of the human race, like no one does that to you more than your mom or your dad. They know where those buttons are because they installed them. You know, it's so, like there's, you know, we have to like work through and figure that shit out. One of the things that uh, really really stood out to me when I was reading a lot of those, I went through a phase where I was reading a lot of books on uh, just the survivors of the Holocaust and all that stuff, is, um, you know, I, one of the topics I started reading the most before that was uh, like Buddhist Buddhist books, Taoist books, because that's a lot of what my dad had in his in his like personal library, so I would read a lot about that, that stuff. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the more I read it, the more I kind of looked down upon materialism, because they have to do with just like, you know, the illusion of, of a bunch of things and what is and isn't real, what is and isn't important, uh, the impermanence of a lot of stuff. So I was like, okay, well, like, yeah, these are like the real dudes, like, uh, you know, caring about if your shirt has this brand on it or that. Like, matter of fact, I'm going to like try to own almost nothing. That was like my, my thought process. And I held it kind of for a while. And um, I was reading one of these books on a survivor of, of one of the crazy concentration camps. And he was talking about how what they try to do is break your humanity by not letting you have the choice of what to wear. You have no more objects, but those objects are kind of part of being a human. It like kind of defines your humanity. Um, that's why it's important for, for the people who were undergoing that to make sure they try to like maybe personal, personally stylize in a little way like mm. their uniform that they're wearing or or make sure they do their hair even though they know damn well that no one gives a fuck about what their hair looks like. Try to clean your nails even though you know it's going to get dirty because that's part of being a human. And reading those books, one of the many things it did was change my mind on the concept of materialism. And because it's kind of talked about in a negative light in a lot of ways. Like you're materialistic. That's like an insult almost. Uh, which I don't think, you know, there's like a balance to be, to be had. And when I read that book and he was talking about how much it means to have those things. And, okay, like, you're shunning materialism. Let's say that, like, I'm shunning materialism. But if I really didn't have that shit and I was in their shoes, like, how then how would I, how would I feel? I wouldn't, you know, I, I've never felt that before. So uh, that was, like, those books are, that really didn't have anything to do with what you were saying. But those books are uh, very, very crazy. Like, anyone who hasn't read them, I definitely suggest reading them. They're, like, insane. You're reading the, the accounts of people who have survived some actual crazy stuff. And they go deep and they tell you about their emotions. And some of them wanted to survive for the sake of being able to share this story so it doesn't get swept under the rug because they've seen it getting swept under the rug by, you know, mad people dying in front of their eyeballs. So um, they're absolutely amazing. Yeah. 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 There's a, there's a... I guess agency is the thing. It's like we, we know psychologically that people who think that they have a choice... And there's, you know, start reading enough philosophy, start kind of, you know, down the road of like, well, is, do we have free will or not? Right. Like that, that's, there's all these philosophers that are like, you know, arguing on that. And that in some way there's arguments on both sides of that. And it's way above my pay grade to start down that conversation. We'll have to do that off air or something. But um, one thing we know for sure is that when you have agency believing that you have some, uh, control over your future you're better off but if you have too much there's too much choice then you're you're frustrated and you don't have anything at all so he talks in the book about like 
sometimes just giving over to whatever fate is. So like sometimes you'd be like, oh, we need a work crew to go do this thing. And then you find out that whoever went on that work crew was just taken to another camp and killed. And it was like, hey, I just decided like I'm going to do the principle of like, no, I'm going to stay here. And he was like, if you live by a principle instead of by torturing yourself over choice, you're better off because what you've done is you've set your agency into a principle. So, I mean, again, going back to like whatever you guys do with your own practices, it's like if if training is a way of life, then you don't have to make the decision every single day. Do I go out and train today? Um, and and that's a lot healthier for the way that our brains work. No, yeah, definitely. Um, what you said, principle. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like that's a, a really crazy driving factor is a principle. If you have something that is like your foundation, like you've already been set decided on this. It definitely like makes you more in a, in some weird sense, not really a machine, but like you make like a machine like choice where it's not even a question no more. Like uh, if that's like your thing, then that's your thing. And then that's the bottom line period. Like some people, especially older generations, when it comes to marriage, like you're married and you're married and then that's it. Like you're going to, it's never a, qu- maybe you would have got divorced if you had been married in a few different generations from now but the thing is that was so far from the question that it's not doesn't even happen right maybe it should have like i'm not saying that no one should ever get divorced but uh i definitely think that that's a super super powerful super powerful factor but it makes it more difficult if that's your mindset the the problem is can you change your mindset if you if you're in a society where everything's about personal choice and your desire and your fulfillment and your your you is, is it possible to do that? Um, you have to do a lot of work to get to the point where it's like, no, that, I want to get to that principle. You can't just decide that and, and, and start one day, right? But do you think that it's in some people's, like, fate or destiny to find that, you know, like, to look outside the box and find that mindset to go, to go beyond that? Or do you think that, uh, you know, does, do you think that everyone has the potential to do that is what I'm trying to say? He doesn't talk much, but when he does, he drops bang or something. <laughs> um, <laughs> Man, I I think it's both. I don't think it's an either or. Um, I I think that there are there are things outside of my control that will happen. Um, there is a fate, and at the same time, there are things inside my control, and those are the only things that I'm going to worry about. Um, I'm going to try to worry about the living the right way the the living the way that's um not just honorable and respectable but gracious and loving and maybe vulnerable and i've made that decision and that vulnerability may be the thing that undoes me in my fate but that's a way that i want to live um damn we got deep oh that was good (laughs) i actually have some i actually uh heard something the other day which i thought was a cool example in terms of like destiny because we talk about that shit all the time um that like, and maybe you guys have heard this example, but like life is like a, like, or destiny in terms of personal choices, like a canvas. And then you have mad, you have different oil paints. Um, now, if you want to paint with watercolor, well, then that's it's too late. It was your destiny to, to have this like oil paint as the medium. But what you do inside the canvas with said oil paint can be pretty much like literally anything. But you can't paint outside of the canvas. It just won't go anywhere. Uh, so I feel like, like you said, there's like a spectrum that we are in control. Of. It's like everything. It's like a mixture of, of both. It's like yeah. stuff that we are in control of, stuff that we aren't. I don't think it's, um, even if it be true, I don't think it's beneficial 
to think that everything is up to destiny. And even if it be true, I don't think it's beneficial to think that nothing is is up to destiny. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think either extreme thought like benefits you. I think like the most beneficial is to have it be somewhere in the middle where you're kind of uh, maybe more matching like re- some sort of reality. Because the fact is that we don't have full control, but I don't think we don't have no control. Like Sam Harris makes a pretty good uh, argument for against the fact like saying we don't have free will. Um, and after I read that, I'm like, damn, he's dead ass right. Like, we, we really don't have free will, bro. Like, that's crazy. But I don't know. Like, uh, especially yeah. when you read people who have been through crazy shit like that. Like, uh, whatever, Victor Frankl. Like, right. I don't know. I think he his experience counts for something. Aside from just philosophical debate, like, he fucking experienced some crazy shit. So, I don't know. That counts. That might count more than, uh, like, sitting and pondering random ideas in, like, a vacuum. Yeah, I mean, these ideas... They're they're not new. I mean, like you know, Saint Augustine's talking about these things. Like, there's there's a theologian. I don't know if this is Augustine, but there's a contemporary guy I was listening to that was kind of talking about this. That like, the nature of the Bible. A lot of people think is like, oh, this is uh, the way that you should live. And if you read like Genesis, it's absolutely not the way that you should live. Like the first couple of generations are just like completely fucked up and like brother murdering brother. But if you end up going through, like, the idea of, like, the lineage of, like, this person had that person had that person, eventually it leads to this idea that redemption comes from this person. And when you go back, you're like, the the, the joke that someone was like, hey, hey, if God wants you to go to Egypt, don't worry. He's going to give you 12 jealous brothers who are going to throw you in a pit and sell you into slavery. He was talking about Joseph and the story of Joseph. And it's like, in some way, the most horrible thing at least in the, the Hebrew Bible, this most horrible thing was a linchpin to how redemption comes in that story. And what's interesting to that to me is that like it still matters. Everything still matters. Um, but at the same time, there's a it, it's it's not an either or, it's a both. And particularly in in that sense, the the Hebrew word has said is this idea that like you are connected to God, God's people. And it's not so much about like you acquiring approval it's about you being connected so it's it's like a father and a and a child right it's like my kid can disappoint me but he's never not going to be my kid and i'm never going to disown him and like that doesn't mean that like he's always living you know my kids are living the way that i want them to be all the time there's always learning opportunities but like in teaching them the way that i want them to live improves our relationship doesn't doesn't make our relationship worse but it's really important for them to know that that relationship is, you know, is secure and it's not insecure. A lot of the anger that we're talking about, it comes from the fact that like we live in a world where like all of us have deep, deep insecurities and all those insecurities come from the fact that like on a macro level and on a micro level, shit's fucked up. Like in our, in our personal lives as much as in, you know, geopolitics, you know? Yeah. Um, Yo, it's, if, if you want to talk about anything else, I'm more than down. If not, I would say, <laughs> dude, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah. Oh, I'm glad. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank yeah. you so much, man. This is amazing. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to re-listen to this one a few yeah. times. All right, right on. All right, peace. Thanks. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Fuck. Um, yeah, so you, you just, you're dropping your new book. Oh, that's what we're here for, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So uh, just, <laughs> I guess, tell people when that, what, what's the deal with dropping it again? When does it come out? And um maybe it'll be out by the time this comes out i'm not sure it'll be around that time so yeah it's out it's been in pre-sale right now if you've ordered a copy of flip the script it's in the mail or will be in the mail next week um it's a uh 
Flip the Script is a history of hand styles in America. It um, took about 10 years to write, and um, it went out of print for about five years, and the prices got insane. And uh, the publisher and I kind of figured out a way to bring it back and make it affordable again, and we're, we're psyched. Make Flip the Script affordable again. That was the... That was our, our slogan that we printed on red hats. Cool. Well, we're definitely we're definitely gonna have the the link to that, you know, in the in the yeah. in the description and put like a little thing in front of the episode for everyone to hear. So, like I said again, thank you for coming, bro. Thanks for having me. Yeah, peace. It.